In the last year, we've produced and distributed dozens of new episodes. We've performed for live audiences coast-to-coast and answered thousands of language questions online, on-air, and in person. When you donate to the show, it means even more of all that in 2019. Go to our website, waywardradio.org, and click on the big green donate button. Thanks. Support for Away With Words comes from Babbel, one of the world's leading language apps. Learn to confidently speak a new language with Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons. Choose from 14 languages like Spanish, French, or German. You'll learn through fun real-life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers and quizzes. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com to try Babbel for free. And from Fusion Academy, a private middle and high school that meets students where they are by personalizing their entire educational experience. Their one-to-one teaching unlocks the academic, social, and emotional potential they believe is in every child. Learn how they're changing lives at FusionAcademy.com. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. I came across the most lovely term the other day, door-dwell. Door-dwell. Can you guess what that is, door-dwell? It's when you don't want to leave and you're just hanging around saying goodbye without going back to your car? That's kind of nice, right? No. Sort of like doorknob hanging, mm-hmm. right? But that's not what door dwell is. It's a D-O-O-R? Yes, D-O-O-R. Second word is D-W-E-L-L. And it's a trade jargon term. Oh, I don't know it. What is it? It is the time it takes the elevator doors to close once you've boarded, once oh, the last person gets on there. That makes a lot of sense because in um, in retail, they talk about dwell times in aisles and in at registers and in, in different spaces. Ah. Dwell time is something you take into account as an architect. Okay. Yeah. Dwell. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I've always loved the word dwell. And then to find door dwell, which is usually two to four seconds. And so, and so of course, I've been reading about elevator jargon, which has fascinated me. And the fact that a lot of building managers disabled the closed door button. Why? You know, the risk of lawsuits. Oh, you know. I see, because you can make it close on someone's arm? Yeah, yeah. So they don't actually work, supposedly. Oh, yeah. And um, hoistway is another one. You that, can probably guess what hoistway is. That's the tall column of space that the elevator yeah, occupies? Yeah, the elevator shaft is called hmm. the the hoist way. And my other favorite term from elevator language is terminal landing. Oh, is that when the cable is cut and it falls unexpectedly? <laughs> no, no, no. It's the top and bottom elevator landing area. Oh, the terminus. Right. So, gotcha. yeah. So all you poets out there, I want to read poems about door dwell and terminal landing. This is a show about words and language and everything related to it. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D and talk to us on Facebook. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Nina from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, Nina. Nina. What's up? Hi, how you doing? Oh, we're good, thanks. (laughs) I have a question, and as you know, Pittsburgh is its own language, has its own language here. When I was a kid, uh, my mother would give me a little bit of money and send me to up the street to the little corner store and say, you know, get a half pound of jumbo. And um, I was usually there with a bunch of other kids who were also getting half pounds of jumbo. You know, I just assumed that this stuff that I was buying, that was the name of it. And then when I got a little bit older and I, I talked to some other people um, that weren't from around here, they said, well, you know, that's, that's baloney. And then I was in denial. I kept thinking, well, no, it can't be. It can't be the same thing. Maybe it's a certain kind of a learning, whatever. <laughs> but what it, I was really curious if you had any information on how did it get from baloney to jumbo, and is this just something that happens in Pittsburgh? Is this just one of our slangs, or do other people call it that for some reason. I can tell you it sure didn't happen in Kentucky when you said half a pound of jumbo. I'm thinking <laughs> elephant meat. That sounds uh. awful. I know. I thought of that too. <laughs> Ew. It's a well-known um, uh, Pittsburghese uh, lexical item, a well-known Pittsburghese word. They're used in southwest Pennsylvania, and it comes from a brand name. There was a brand name of bologna, bologna, bologna. <laughs> um, made by a company called Isalys, I-S-A-L-Y. Okay. Yeah. And so the, it's just kind of like a way yeah. that Kleenex became generic or Xerox became generic, at least for that part of the country, Jumbo became generic for bologna. Oh, so it was actually 
what that brand called that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. It was the brand name and then became generic. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talk about market domination. They must, just, they must have just owned the whole bologna distribution center there. Just, ever, <laughs> <laughs> just pushed out all the other competitors. Bologna owner. <laughs> well, so no other place. I mean, it's just here that calls it that's that. That's right. That's exactly right. Oh, wow. And they wow, didn't make it to the cool West Coast. To know. Yeah. We have at least in print uses of it going back to the 1970s, but I have no doubt that jumbo meaning bologna in, in Pennsylvania is much older than that, probably decades older. Well, I was growing up in the 60s and we used it. Yeah. So at least back that far. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it's, you know. Print always lags behind sandwich, spoken language. You yeah. know. Well, Nina, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. That was very, uh, (laughs) now I have a mystery solved in my life Oh, bring us more. (laughs) Thank you. Bring us whatever you have, all right? (laughs) Take care now. Hens, take care. Uh Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good. The Pittsburgh Geese, not only do they have the unusual language, they're so proud of it. And there's some really great books have been written about it. Barbara Johnstone has written several. Yeah. Gum band is one of those. Gum band. For rubber band. Lots of those. Give us a call, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Uh, Good morning. This is Bob Felton from Reno. Hey, Bob. Welcome to the show. How can we help you? Well, I was looking at a phrase, um, actually a quote from a famous advertising guy. It says, if your advertising goes unnoticed, everything else is academic. And that phrase is academic or it's all academic or it's just academic uh, is often heard in a dismissive way. People dismiss the relevance or the importance of whatever an effort might be by simply saying, well, that's all academic. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering where that phrase came from, how it became used. Does it sound dismissive to you to call it academic or as a way of belittling it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a, a common way that you hear it. Yeah, just kind of theoretical. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what are some ways that you've encountered academic like this? Well, I think that uh, you'll hear it in the business world sometimes uh, uh, to have people say, well, um, that's fine, but it's just academic. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of usage. Yeah, I've encountered it similar to that, where it's definitely a way of I think short-circuiting the conversation, reducing the discussion so that um, somebody with a strong will can get their way without having that will be challenged. That's an interesting perception. I would agree with that. I've also seen it used in situations where it didn't matter anymore whether or not you discussed it. It was done. What was done was done, and there was no fixing it, no going back, no redoing it. And in that case, the conversation about what you could do to fix it is academic. It's just, it's done, right? Yes, yes. I've heard it used that way as um, well. And the answer of why we say this is actually really simple because academia is a place where things are discussed. Uh, academics really are about conversation. They're about professor-led discourse, more or less. And it has traditionally been so, at least in the European-slash-Western-Greco-Roman tradition, is almost always been about discussion. And so it just basically you're saying, if you're saying it's... It's academic at this point. You're just saying all that's left is the talk, right? It's all over I, but the shouting. I guess so. I guess so. Do you know anything about uh, its origin? I'm looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, which takes it back to the early 19th century of the sense of not leading to a decision or or just theoretical, theoretical. Or, you know, okay. formal, and, and, and therefore now in a weakened sense of no consequence or irrelevant. Right, and that weakened... Inside that ivory tower. It's interesting that it goes that far back. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks, Bob. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Lately, just for fun, I've been looking at copies of old magazines, including Boy's Life, which has a little section in it called Think and Grin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Did you ever read Yeah, that little when jokes and riddles and yeah. one-liners and kind of like lowest common denominator humor, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. These, these magazines from the 1950s are pretty much that. Here's just one example. Woman. I'll have a large lamb chop with buttered carrots and peas and have the chop lean. Waiter. Yes, madam, which way? (laughs) 
877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello. Uh, nice of you to take my call. My name is Joe, and I'm calling from Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Joe. So what's on your mind today? Despite my age, which is in the early 80s, I do recall that my ninth grade uh, English teacher at Burlington High School in Burlington, Vermont, who sported a Phi Beta Kappa key and was an excellent teacher, was also a stern disciplinarian, of which I was a victim. When she first detected me whispering to the classmate who sat in front of me, she announced that I was to write the poem 50 times. And the poem, which I can still recite so many years later, went this way. For those who talk and talk and talk, this proverb may appeal. The steam that blows the whistle will never turn the wheel. Well, it took me an hour or more to write that out 50 times and turn it in the next day. But then she caught me a second time and meted out the same punishment. So I did it a second time. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, there came a third time. Oh, no. She again administered the same punishment. And it was burned into your memory, clearly. What does it mean to you? What, why is it referring to steam and whistles? The phrase, the steam that blows the whistle will never turn the wheel, was uh, an analogy to the side conversation in a class that was never going to amount to anything. <laughs> so if you're talking, you're not working. It, it um, would not be productive work. Right. Yeah. Useless chatter. I can find some uses of this in books about Proverbs back to as far back as 1910, there are a couple variations I see on this in books of Proverbs and aphorisms and old sayings. One of my favorites is, the fellow who blows his horn the loudest is likely in the biggest fog. <laughs> but I think, Oh, boy, that is but good. But I think that one has more to do with just dominating the conversation than it does with having any kind of chit-chat right. when you should be doing other work. If you look in old teaching manuals over the last several hundred years, there are often these sorts of sayings that are little humorous, like column fillers or things that are listed to kind of lighten the content a little Mm -hmm. bit. And I'm quite sure that teachers would borrow those to use on their students. So not a highfalutin literary reference or anything No, not really. As far as I know, that's not Shakespeare or anything like that. All right. You were doing this in cursive, I take it? I wrote it out. Yeah. It, it takes over an hour to write that poem out 50 <laughs> times. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for your call, buddy. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to talk with you folks, and I enjoy the show. Thank you thank very you, much. Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye now. Joe's punishment brought back a lot of memories for me of the things that my parents would say and the things my parents would have me do, having to do with language. And if you've got some of those, we'd love to hear about them, 877-929-9673. Or tell us about the terrible writing assignment you had to do an email to words at waywardradio.org. Support for Away With Words comes from the Tony Award-winning Old Globe, part of the San Diego community for over 80 years. The Old Globe believes that theater matters and is committed to making it matter to more people. Theoldglobe.org. Just want to let you know that this show cannot be made without support from listeners like you. If you've benefited from the many hours and resources it takes to make episodes of Away With Words, then go to waywardradio.org and donate today. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and we're joined by our quiz guide, John Chinesky. Hello, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hey, John. What's up? Well, I have a cool little puzzle for you today, a little quiz. Uh, In this day and age, you know, you have to be as speedy and efficient as possible. For example, someone sent me a text saying he was pre-aching. And I thought, well, sure, if you know you're going to be running a marathon tomorrow, it would be very smart to get that out of the way today. Then I realized he meant preaching. (laughs) Pre-aching. Nevertheless, I'm still pre-aching the gospel of efficiency and reading things the wrong way. I'll describe a text. You tell me what forward-thinking word I've made an error about. Now, there should be a clue to the original word in there somewhere, too. All right? Mm-hmm. Here we go. 
My dad was texting me about my birthday, and as I understand it, he mailed me a gift yesterday. That's preposterous. Present. Present. Oh. Right. He presented. Oh, present. Okay. Very good. Pre-sense. Now I get how this works. These will all begin with P-R-E. Oh. Okay. Right. <laughs> My kid texted me about his field trip today to the National Archives to see the Constitution. Now, as I understood it, they took a leisurely walk over there yesterday. To see the president? I don't know. Um, no. What's the Constitution famous for? Preambled. They oh. preambled over there. <laughs> right, they, pre- pre- they preambled. What? Yeah, <laughs> very good. My brother was texting me something about the early ancestors of computer interfaces. I think that's what it was. Something about the pointer on his computer screen from days gone by. Precursors? Yes, the precursor. Very good. <laughs> now, here, this is right up your alley. My linguist friend was texting a list of word parts, and I thought, good, you should make sure any mistakes have been rectified yesterday. Prefixed. Yes, prefixed. <laughs> Prefix. My mom was texting me something about getting ready for Thanksgiving, and I thought, well, at least you peeled the potatoes ahead of time. Prepared. prepared. Yes, prepared. <laughs> My doctor was texting me something about medications I was supposed to take, and I thought, well, why did he hire someone to handwrite a manuscript of these things yesterday? Prescribe. Prescribe, yeah, that's weird. Mom, again, texting me about canning fruits and veggies for winter, and I'm like, well, what does this have to do with you playing tennis yesterday? <laughs> Preserve. Preserve, right. Uh, my brother texted me about my niece playing dress-up, and I thought... Well, at least she took care of her garden yesterday. Pretend. Oh. Yes, they pretend. <laughs> what does it have to do with the garden? Pretend your garden. Pretend your garden. My friend was texting me about his work with the CDC, keeping people healthy, and I responded, well, good thing you expelled all that toxic gas ahead of time. <laughs> hmm. You prevent. Prevent. Oh. Oh. Yes, very good. <laughs> uh. And on that note, wow. thank you, dude. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll see you soon. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye. It's a show about words and language and how we use them and some goofing around. 877-929-9673. Email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi, Gren and Martha. This is um, Jenny from Portland, Oregon. Hiya, Jenny. What's up? Well, I have a problem. Um, it seems to me like there's kind of a hole in the English language. I've been in a situation where I needed a noun to describe something that was fake or made up, and there are a lot of words for that, but none of them seem natural to me. What were you talking about? What was the thing that was fake or made up? Um, in this situation, it was in uh, in dental school in our cafeteria. There were some a new series of drinks, and they're supposed to give you different powers, like one was supposed to make you happy, and one was supposed to make you sleepy, and one was supposed to make you sexy, and someone asked you what my opinion of it was. And I was like, it, want, it sounds like something to me, and I couldn't think of that something, what that word should be. To me, there's one obvious word that would go in there that's not radio-friendly, but I also <laughs> prefer not to swear. It just seems a little aggressive. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then I looked it up in the thesaurus later. I was trying to find something else that would work in that situation, but all the words just sounded like they belonged, like they were coming out of the mouth of a grandpa. It was like poppycock and malarkey and flimflam, and none of that sounds right to me either. So I'm wondering if I'm missing a word that exists or if I just need to embrace my inner grandpa and, and go with one of those words. <laughs> <laughs> I like all those words. What does it say about me? <laughs> Embrace your inner grant. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so they didn't give you the powers that they said they were going to give you. Well, I didn't try them, but ah. someone asked what I thought of them, and that was what I thought. <laughs> so we're, you so, missed your opportunity. So the modern slang word janky, does that work? To me, something that's janky means that it's like falling apart or poorly made okay, so versus no. just, you know, has, there's claims being made about it that aren't true. So what about, okay, so fraud or fake or hoax and none of those really worked for you? Kind of. Kind I, of. I, for fraud, maybe the closest thing. Hmm. I feel like those all have little, just sort of tweaks to their meaning that don't exactly capture what I'm going for. The way that like poppycock really does capture what I mean, but I just don't feel comfortable using poppycock as a 20-year-old. <laughs> you should do it. No, but you should. <laughs> yeah. Would it help if you knew it came from Dutch words that mean soft poop? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that would help. <laughs> 
I will tell you, Jenny, the one word that I think works best here, however, it's a little kind of a feat, maybe literary even, is the word chicanery. But you're going to sound pretentious if you it use it. It doesn't sound quite so grandpa-ish. <laughs> you hear me? You're going to sound pretentious if you use it, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I ended up saying BS, just saying not the whole word, but saying BS. Yeah. And I, I don't love it, but that was what I ended up using that day. So I, I feel like situation to situation, you could choose between those two. That might work. What about yeah. sham or bunk or... Or, or bogus. bogus. What about bogus? Or, or rubbish. I can, I can take another look at the source. Some of those are not so bad. Rubbish sounds a little grandpa-y. Oh, I was thinking... Focus sounds a little, uh, I don't know, 80s? Well, how dare you say that about mm. me? I, I don't know. Um, yeah, bogus. You have to say it like that, right? Hmm. Bogus. That's a really interesting question, actually. So we want we want something that's more age-appropriate for you. Apparently, we're not giving you age-appropriate ideas. <laughs> but the, I want to get to this. I cor- think there might have been some good ones in there. I just feel like these, these words that mean this seem to be kind of loaded with more meaning than, you know, just that they belong to a certain time period or something like that than a lot of words. <laughs> what about something more general like crap? Was that is that too close to obscenity for you? Uh, it's not too bad. That might, that might work in some situations, too. I'll add that to my list of possible words. Well, I think, Jenny, this is clearly one of those calls where we have to put the call out to our listeners and see what they have to suggest for you. All right. So here's the call out. If you know the word that Ginny should use to, to describe something, a noun preferably, where they're making claims about a product that cannot be substantiated, then we want to know, and so does Jenny. Give us a call, 877-929-9673, or email us, words at waywardradio.org. How's that, Jenny? I think that'll be good. We'll find out. <laughs> okay, Thanks we're going to crowdsource it. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jenny. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Shreya Gardner. I'm calling from San Diego. A fellow San Diegan, welcome. What's up? I work um, for a corporation, and in the last year I've been getting responses to scheduling emails that say, I'll revert, or we'll revert, meaning we'll get back to you. And that seems really wrong to me. Hmm. Revert? Yeah, it doesn't have an object or anything, it's just... Revert? Period? No, um, it's just revert. I'll say, for example, so and so has availability on the following dates and times. Please get back to me. Let me know what works for you. And they go, okay, we'll check with so and so and revert. Interesting. And I'm like, revert back to what? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's R E V E R T, right? Yeah. Are your correspondents from the subcontinent, are they Indian perhaps, or Bangladeshi, or Pakistani? They're from New York, and they're almost all in banking. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah. It's just interesting because most of the books that I know about world Englishes use have revert, and they have an entry, and they mark it as being Indian. It's one of these, mm-hmm. at least in the subcontinent, it's a holdover from several hundred years of British bureaucracy where this word lived on after the British themselves stopped using it in that way for the most part. Yeah, well, it seems to me that you can only revert back to something that you already were, like yeah. the Hulk can revert back to Dr. Bruce Banner. <laughs> nice. But, yeah. Or I can revert back to my childish ways, but I can't revert back to you. And it just means to get back to somebody. Like, if I revert to you, it means I'll get back to you with an answer or a follow-up. Right. Yeah. I mean, it basically means I'll get back to you, but it just seems wrong. Well, and that holds to the etymological history of this word. We got it from the French. I think it came into English a couple different times. It's got hundreds of years of history. And over the years, its meaning has changed here and there. But almost always, there's this really solid underlying meaning of go back, return, um, reciprocate, mm-hmm. um, or reestablish, or... or just return to a previous state. And I think this use, as odd as it sounds, actually conforms really well to other meanings of the word over history. Well, it's really succinct. It, I keep, it reminds me of dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> yeah. You know? Exactly. I'm like waiting for, I'm, I'm like, okay, what are you going to revert to? This could be interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, That's awesome. Yeah, they just basically mean, I mean, it sounds like it's email shorthand for I'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in that sense, I think it's really efficient. It just It's odd to my ear, but I bet if I were in your office, I would get used to it. 
I guess I'm old school. I'm well, not used to it. <laughs> I'm old school, too. But well, now I, I mean... want to talk to your correspondents in New York City and figure out where they learned it and take this back down the the tree of language and figure out how this is spreading because I love it. It's a it's an innovation that I haven't seen in the United States before. Yeah, so Grant will do that and then he will revert. <laughs> and then we'll revert. Okay. <laughs> Shreya, thank you for calling. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye. Shreya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, we love these field reports about language, so give us a call, 877-929-9673, or you can send them an email to words at waywardradio.org. A little wisdom from Bob Marley. Truth is, everybody's going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. Oh, nice. It's is true. that not mm-hmm. the truth? 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Gabe Kenneth calling from Interlock uh, in Michigan. Hi, Gabe. How you doing? Hey, Gabe. Well, here's the thing. My brother and I have a huge rivalry. And every time we get in the competition, we always tell each other to put up each other's dukes. And we've never known where the term comes from. Is it like British royalty fighting each other with their, with their dukes and duchesses? Or, you know, what's the origin of the term? You have the same question that a lot of people do. And we've never had a, a really clear, firm etymology on this. But there are a couple of theories that are both interesting and colorful, one of which is that Duke comes from a Romani word, uh, the language associated with people who who are called gypsies, but we don't use that word anymore. But uh, there's a word in the Romani language, Duke, D-O-O-K, that means the hand. And it could be, you know, put up your hands that way. The other story uh, is colorful, but there are some problems with it, um, that it's a contraction of the phrase Duke of York's or Dukes of York, Um, which are you familiar with Cockney rhyming slang, the slang of East London? Yes. So like in Cockney rhyming slang, instead of saying feet, you might say plates of meat. So if I'm standing all day, I might say, oh, my plates of meat are tired. And in Cockney rhyming slang, supposedly Duke of York's or Dukes of York um, is a reference to the term fork, which is a slang term for hand. If you think about it, forks look like hands and you use them to grab things. The problem with that is that there aren't really good citations about that, although a lot of authorities will mention that, that particular one. Yeah, criminal slang and can't tends not to be chronicled very accurately or very soon. And so written citations for that are slim. The Romani word is really the best guess. I would agree with Martha. Another spelling of that is D-U-K. There is some palm reading called dukering or duckering, which is D-U-K-K-E-R-I-N-G, which is associated with that group as well. And that one, that word is well chronicled. There's a direct connection there to the underworld. It's got a really strong history. It's probably the most likely source for it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You all don't actually put up your dukes, do you? No, I don't. No. Um, we usually are playing a game of chess when we bring it up. Oh, oh I see. I'm imagining you standing there like Gentleman Jim Corbett with your <laughs> in that weird pose with the fist up in front of your face. As much as I'd like to, sometimes we never result to actual violence. Excellent. Well, glad to hear it. You just Thanks, have Gamaki's word battles. Thank you so much. Pick Good talking name. with you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, my name is Emily Kirkland. I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the show. Hello, Emily. Um, My question is about the word goober. I looked it up in the dictionary, and it says that it's the word that black people back in George Washington Carver's time used for peanuts. But my sister also uses it as a word for peanut butter and jelly mixed together. So, like the kind that you buy in the store where they're both in the same jar, or when she puts it together herself in like a swirl in a bowl? She puts it together herself. Peanut butter and jelly mixed together called goober. I wonder if that's a brand name. Interesting, maybe. Because you're right. Um, The word goober itself for peanut is really interesting. It goes back to actually uh, a language from Central and South Africa and uh, people who were enslaved and brought over here in the 1600s and 1700s used that to apply it to peanuts here in this country. Mm -hmm. So you're you're right about the history of it. And there is a product called Goober. Aha! Yes, made by Smuckers. It's a type of candy. 
Well, not just that, but there's a jar that you can buy that has peanut butter and jelly together in the jar. It's made by Smuckers, and it is called Goober. That's the name oh. of it. Goober Stripes is one of the variants of it. So maybe she's just generalizing from the product in the store and making her own at home. Oh. And then she also uses it as a nickname for me. Well, that's uh-huh. not nice. Because <laughs> that's, that's a longstanding insult. Uh, <laughs> because what happened was, so the slaves brought it from a variety of African languages to the United States. And then it became the term for peanut, widespread in the American South. And then it became the term that you would refer to the farmers that raised those peanuts, and it was meant as a derogatory term. That means kind of insulting, kind of treating them like they were unsophisticated or didn't have any kind of class and education. And then from there, it became a little more generalized insult to just somebody that you wanted to put down. They're a goober. And not completely offensive, not like the worst ever, but not nice. Is that the way she uses it, Emily? She calls me your little goober. Uh (laughs) Maybe that's more of a pet term because you're small like a peanut. I'm 5'2". Okay, not small at all. Okay. Okay. Well, what you need to do is ask her next time she makes some goober to make you one, too, because they're yummy, right? Goober sandwiches, yeah? Sounds good. Actually, I make it, too. Okay. Uh Aha, you do. And so what do you say to her when she calls you a goober? I call her Google. Google. Google and goober. Right. What a Google is like the superlative form of goober, like even more goobery. Emily, thank you so much for giving us a call. We really appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Emily. There's a nice history there, right? It's connected to an unfortunate part of American history, mm-hmm. one of the worst black marks on our record, right? Mm-hmm. This, the slave trade. But there are a number of words like the juke and jukebox that mm-hmm. we are pretty sure came into English from mm-hmm. Africans. Yes, which yes. Is really interesting Yeah, stuff. a few food words like goober, like yam, mm-hmm. and okra. okra. All of those right. come from yeah. uh, African languages. Mm, fried okra yeah. with cornmeal oh batter. Gosh. Cornmeal batter. <laughs> <laughs> is it lunchtime? <laughs> yes. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Here's an interesting word, ephelis, E-P-H-E-L-I-S, ephelis. No idea. It means freckle. Oh, nice. You know, if you use the word freckle too many times in a paragraph and need a substitute, you can use ephelis. And nobody will understand you, but okay. Right. (laughs) And I looked it up. It comes from a Greek word that means nail stud. Nail stud. Oh, I see, like the head of a nail sticking it in the wood. Exactly. Oh, cool. Ephelis. 877-929-9673. Support for Away With Words comes from Fusion Academy, a private middle and high school that personalizes education for its students. Through one-to-one education, students are re-engaged at home, at school, and in the world. With customized classes, teachers foster creativity and help students love learning again, or maybe for the first time. Find out more at fusionacademy.com. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Remember that call we got from Sarah in Texas? She was the bank teller who had had a brain injury. Oh, yeah. And she was talking about how she sometimes has difficulty finding words, and it's especially difficult because it's an invisible injury that she can't really... Right. She's looking for words to explain it to Without people. having to do a long conversation about it every single time. Right, right. And she was looking for language to help her along in a really efficient way. And a lot of people wanted to help her out. We got lots and lots of emails and phone calls about this. Maria in Dallas also has brain injuries and suggests just saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm having word trouble from a brain injury. Just really straightforward. Okay. I get that. Crystal Kelly from Florida says, why don't you use a technological uh, metaphor? Like, sometimes my brain and mouth don't sync up. Oh, very like good. That. Yeah. We also got a really interesting letter from Joanne in Simsbury, Connecticut, who has neurological problems as the result of Lyme disease that also have the same effect, that sometimes she can't find the right word. And she used to work as an artist and photographer, and she says that now she does volunteer work where she has to use the phone a lot. And she uses her visual memory. She actually keeps written lists of common words and phrases next to her so that she can look at those lists and kind of have them fresh in her mind, or Mm -hmm. I guess look at them during a phone conversation. But she also said that since her illness, she's uh, developed a couple of interesting, unusual conditions, one of which is hyperlexia, which usually occurs in children, and that's a near obsession with the written word and trouble with the spoken word, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really 
really interesting. She said, I've decided to use this to my advantage and have begun to write short stories and personal essays. Right now I'm 500 pages into my first novel and enjoying the process immensely. So wish me luck. And she said the second condition that she has is called palinopsia, which is a visual hallucination involving an image of a written page that stays superimposed on her vision even when she looks away. Oh, wow. It's actually kind of fascinating. She said, it's like seeing through a clear sheet of acetate covered with the most recent page I've read. It's most visible when I'm staring at a white wall. This image can remain for weeks or until I read another page. And since I read so often, the images change quickly. Like the late Oliver Sacks, I've decided to regard both of my new conditions as interesting rather than disturbing, and I'm choosing to use them in an advantageous manner. I feel that a positive, unapologetic attitude about these conditions helps. How how outstanding. Yeah. If we could all uh, treat our illnesses in that way. Yeah. Right? Every time you come across a difficulty, find a way to genuinely make it an advantage. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge, of course, but but I thought that was just such a, a graceful way mm-hmm. of, of dealing with that kind of thing. That's so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. If you've got something to say about language or anything that we air on this show, give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send us an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello. Oh, this is uh, Blaine Chambers calling from Billings, Montana. Hi, Blaine. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. What can we do for you? Well, um, I, I have a question about a word. My brother and I grew up on a rural farm there in Arkansas, the farms are transitioning from, you know, being labor uh, mainly to being mechanized farms. Mm-hmm. And we, my brother and I would play in all of these old abandoned houses. And we would come back to our farm store and tell of our adventures. And some of the old Af- African-American ladies there would say, Fatty Red, I wouldn't play in them houses if I was you. There's haints in there. And we were like, haints? Now, what's a haint? And uh, so my brother and I discussed it, and we, you know, we over the years we just thought it was a variation of haunt, but the context it was used in seemed more uh, malevolent than, you know, ghost. So we just, over the years, just wondered what that was. Well, you're exactly right. Haint is a variant of of haunt, and it does refer to ghosts or spirits. Uh, my uh, Aunt Mazo was from North Carolina, and, and I can remember her talking about, don't go by that house. It's got a haint in it. Uh, yes, ma'am. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And but 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 it did it did really seem to me that 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 now and I we had heard them use the word ghost. But uh, when they when they used haint, it seemed to be a more of a, as I said, more of a malevolent than a ghost. Yeah, that's and according that's, to these people, yeah. there were haints everywhere. You, <laughs> yeah, that comes from so, my understanding um, as well that a haint is definitely somebody, maybe more like a poltergeist out for mischief. Yeah, oh, exactly, mm. exactly. Some some uh, something that we modern day people would refer to as as a poltergeist. But uh, like I said, my brother and I have you know have puzzled over this for years. So the haint here, that's a noun form of a dialect pronunciation of haunt, then. Does exactly, that... exactly. And it is a southernism. I've, I've read Dolly Parton talking about, about haints. haints. Yeah, yeah, and a haint tale is a ghost story. So it's interesting that you have that, that extra deeper layer of meaning of it being uh, more malevolent than I've known it to be. That's interesting. Yes, ma'am. Well, and, and, and the way it was my brother and I, you know, it was like a, when um, when parents would tell their children, "Don't go out in the woods. There's a boogeyman there." Yeah, you know? yeah. And as a uh, as a as a as a warning mechanism to to get your child to do whatever uh-huh. <laughs> whatever you didn't want them to be doing. Uh huh. So so have we solved this thing, guys? I think we did. Yeah. Yes, we did. You had it. <laughs> when I get off the phone, I'm going to call my brother and and tell him the mystery has been solved. It has indeed. Thank you so much for your call, sir. Thank you so much. You guys have a great Take day. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks, Blaine. Bye bye. Yes, ma'am. Well, the interesting thing about haunt, while we're on the subject, is that it originally meant to hang around a place, right? right? To frequent a place. Right. And so when we talk about, this is one of my favorite haunts. I love, exactly. love coming here for ice cream. Mm-hmm. That's actually the original meaning. And then the ghost is called a haunt or it does haunting because mm-hmm. it hangs around a place. Right, 
Right. So that's that usually blows people's minds. Like, wait a second, did it originally refer to ghosts? Like, nope. No, it's, it's about yeah. their behavior. Very good point. Yes, where you hang out. Where do you hang haunt. out? Well, yeah. this is one of our favorite haunts here: library, bookstore, looking in a dictionary. If it's yours too, give us a call eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, it's Bill Waters here. Hey, Bill, where are you calling us from? From uh, Marquette, Michigan. Well, welcome. What can we do for you? I'm puzzled by a particular uh, uh, use of the word pretty. Uh, I don't know if that's a, uh, a universal idiom or if it's uh, peculiar to the United States, but I know uh, we'd be hard-pressed to express ourselves about certain things that uh, impact us uh, mightily if we couldn't say pretty, as in pretty good, pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Bob's pretty good bank. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Bertha's pretty good kitty boutique. Uh, Bill, that's really interesting. What brought this to your mind? Why did you? Why were you thinking about pretty? Well, I'm kind of a uh, backwoods scholar of uh, languages generally, and I can speak several. And in, in none of those that I'm familiar with, uh, does that does that combination show up? Uh, as, as universally as it does in English. Um, uh, is that an oxymoron? Pretty good or pretty bad? Pretty awful? That kind of thing. And yet it's so commonly accepted and, and, and hardly ever questioned. Uh, in some ways, it just doesn't make sense to me. So I come to the experts for help. Yeah, we'll never look to English for logic because yeah, okay. you're, you're going to go away disappointed almost every time. When we go back to the origin of pretty in Old English, it actually didn't mean anything like it does today. It was more about um, being cunning or crafty or or being adept at something. It moves on to being clever or skillful. Eventually, it becomes elegant or artful. And then we reach this really interesting point where pretty kind of means what it does today. That's the 15th century or so. Um, but there's a kind of patronizing tone to it, definitely in opposition to beautiful. If I called something pretty or someone pretty, it didn't mean that they, I thought that they were worthy of adoration. And it meant that there was something super, superficially attractive about them and that it wasn't any kind of deep-seated quality in their nature or their being. It just didn't. That was in the original uh, sense of the word. Yeah, yeah. And so what we start to see pretty quickly is that almost derogatory use of pretty, a dismissive way of, of, well, she's just pretty, um, instead of she's beautiful. Um, We start Uh to see that over 100 years or so transform. And so by the 1600s, well into the 1600s, so pretty starts to have these two meanings where you can say something is pretty good or um, pretty nice. And what we have is, I would almost call it a reverse intensifier. It's a weakener uh, where the word that pretty is attached to the adjective it's attached to takes a little bit less power. If I say pretty good, that's not as good as good, right? If I say pretty nice, that's not as nice as nice. Mm-hmm. And we find yeah. that again and again, unlike other intensifiers, such as um, if I say it's a, that's a whopping good pizza you've made there, well, that means the good is even more good than good, right? Yeah. And so then we get, that gets us to where today we are today, where if someone's in a... Um, if someone is called, um, oh, that's a pretty nice shirt. I'm actually probably not complimenting the shirt very much, am I? Uh, unless, unless you add something like um, another modifier, like uh, that's a daggone pretty shirt you're, you're wearing today. Well, <laughs> and then it's the other meaning of pretty. Then it becomes the one that has to do something to do with the attractiveness. Yeah, I'm thinking of the movie Pretty Woman. Yeah. I mean, what if they'd called it Beautiful Woman? <laughs> beautiful Woman, right? Maybe it wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah, I, I grew up with pretty being a... <laughs> A yeah. pretty positive word. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, you want to be pretty when you grow up. There's a there's another pretty which we use. We're talking, for example, if I say that you were in a pretty pickle, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there was an attractive pickle. That it means it was quite some pickle, and that is an intensifying <laughs> use of pretty. That's a that means a, a that's a means a, a problem of some great proportion. Okay, well, I think I got it now. I think I got it. Yeah. So, but hundreds of years of this split use of pretty. Okay. Well, um, you got that cleared up for me. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Bill, for calling. Glad to help. Okay, my pleasure. Bye, Bill. We have another word in English that behaves like pretty, and that's fair and fairly, right? Ah, yeah, yeah I never that's, thought that's about a fair, that. That's a fairly good uh-huh. um, test score. Yeah, right? fairly good. That's, that's, Not... that's a fair deal. Yeah, yeah, it does. It cuts into it a little bit, right? Yeah. It, it dilutes it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the British quite. 
quite, or rather. Or rather, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't mean very. Good. It doesn't mean very. It means right. like kind of a negative version of very. Yeah. A little less than quite, a little less than rather. Yeah. Amazing what happens when you just bore into one single word. Call us about the one you're thinking about, 877-929-9673, or send us an email to words at waywardradio.org. question for you. When someone asks you a penny for your thoughts and you put your two cents in, what happens to the other penny? <laughs> I, th- I think it's like Richard Pryor in the Superman movie where he <laughs> takes the remainder of every fraction of a cent and he tells the computer to give it to him in a check and then he buys a really fancy car. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that you mentioned Richard Pryor because that quotation was actually from George Carlin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're part of the same peer group, right? Great yeah, comedians. Yeah. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Bruce Alvarez. Hi, Bruce. Where are you calling us from? Fairfax, Vermont. Excellent. What's up? Well, I've been watching a bunch of old TV shows from back when I was a kid, and I've been watching McHale's Navy. And in one episode from uh, uh, season one, Captain Bingham used the term fickle finger of fate. And the only references I have to that in my mind are from Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Right. And the only things I can find beyond that, there's a book titled Fickle Finger of Fate by Raymond Ives, but it was published in 2008. And the term was also used in a book called Crossing the Line by Wendell Saylor, published in 2013. Mm. So I'm trying to figure out when was it first used and why. Mm-hmm. Well, remind us about the fickle finger of fate on Laugh-In. I remember that well. It was basically something that was offered up, I think, as a joke, and they called it the flying fickle finger of fate. Mm-hmm. And wasn't it a little little um, trophy or something that had a Yes, a it was a trophy that had like a little propeller or something on it. Yeah. Really goofy like the rest of that show, right? The yes. Flying fickle finger of fate being awarded to somebody. But it's actually much older than that. Yeah, most people would know it from Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, but I can take some form of it back to at least the 1930s, decades before Laugh-In, and different parts of the phrase, we can break them down, take them back to the 1860s and 1870s. If you go back to the 1870s, you will find the finger of fate and you'll find fickle fate separately used in different texts in different ways, but they're always talking to... Um, this experience we have as humans where we kind of don't know what's next, right? We don't know what our day of doom is going to be. We don't know how badly our well-played plans will end up in disarray. It's all about fate. And that fickle fate or the finger of fate is something that we always have to kind of pay attention to. By the 1930s, these two phrases were combined into the fickle finger of fate. And they start to pop up in the language of military men, especially during World War II, where it's they're using it to talk about what happens when you die? Like you're killed on the battlefield in a way that is unexpected. It's not just this glorious moment. It's just you died in a Jeep accident maybe instead of being shot by the enemy and the fickle finger of fate. And they put the F word on the front of it as well. So it's the F word fickle finger of fate. Um, And in that way, they just kind of turn it into this really dark humor, this gallows humor. You just don't know when your time is up. Yeah, you're thinking maybe it's the middle finger. Yeah, yeah, the middle finger of fate. (laughs) I've always thought about it as being this kind of bony finger of death, you know, pointing at me out of the shroud to say, now is your time, something (laughs) like that. That's a little scary. Yeah. And even... I I still, I think, think of it as just like you said, we don't know what's going to happen and things happen and it's the fickle finger of fate. Yeah, that's part of being alive, right? And are are there specific references to it in texts prior to the McHale's Navy episode I saw? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Like I say, it comes up uh, in print in the 1930s for sure as the full phrase of the fickle finger of fate. And in the 1940s, it comes up with the F word attached to the beginning of it in uh, the American Speech, which is a journal published by the American Dialect Society. And there's a glossary of military terms used by soldiers during World War II. And it's in there. But interestingly, it's in there as the F wording flickle flinger of flate. Where they've, as a joke, have inserted L's in all of the words. So presumably the writers of that episode knew it from World War II context because 
Mikhail's Navy is a World War II. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they may very well have had some copies of these military glossaries, which, which floated around and were published and appeared in various forms in newspapers during the war. Yeah. And, of course, people consumed uh, war stories, real and, and imagined. They consumed newspaper stories about it. They heard back from their soldiers who were abroad in letters. So, yeah, the whole country was immersed in World War II, and it's not surprising that this language got around. It's very interesting. Thank you. Bruce, thank you for this walk down memory lane. I'm I'm remembering all these uh, laugh in jokes now, and uh, and uh, remember how the people got doused with water and all that. Sock it to me. And and Artie Johnson falling over on his tricycle. Yes, <laughs> yes, those were the days, Bruce. Thank you so much for calling. All right, thank you. Take care. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at w a y w o r d. Here's another word that was new to me, Grant. Tunket, T-U-N-K-E-T. Do you know that Mm-mm, word? Don't know that one. It's a euphemism for hell. Tunket. What? Yeah. What's the derivation of that? Nobody knows, but it's a, it's a U.S. dialectal term. Like what in Tunket? What in Tunket? Huh? Yeah. Who to Tunket? Who to Tunket? What in Tunket? Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Want more away with words? Listen to years of past episodes at waywardradio.org or find the show in any podcast app or on iTunes. Our toll-free line is always open, so leave us a message at 877-929-9673 and we'll take a listen. We love to get your messages at words at waywardradio.org or hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D and look for us on Facebook. This program would not be possible without you. Grant and I are out to change the way we listen and think about language, and you're making it happen. Thanks also to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director and editor Tim Felton, director Colin Tedeschi, and production assistant Emma Kelman in San Diego. In New York, we thank quiz guy John Chinesky and that master of keeping it real, Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc. From the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. So long. Bye-bye. Support for Away With Words comes from Lizanne, Fokian, and Chloe Potamianos Homem, proud sponsors of Wayward, Inc., the nonprofit that produces and distributes this program. Now that you've enjoyed this episode, please support the show by donating at waywardradio.org slash donate. Your financial support means even more new episodes in 2019. Thank you.